Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm talking to Alan C. Jones about his very first novel, Her Death Was Also Water. Alan, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here and uh, thanks for having me. Your biography is perhaps one of the most interesting, most diverse and enigmatic that I've ever read. You're an Associate Professor of English Literature and Culture, a poet and a writer of prose, but your work also has a digital aspect, including non-linear textual experiences and creative user interfaces. Tell me about your approach to literature, to writing and to teaching, and how that might have found its way into her death was also water. It's a big question and a great question. Um, you know, I have had a, a sort of a varied life, uh, you know, born in California, uh, lived in several different countries, Mexico, Korea, Spain, China, and ended up uh, wildly in Norway teaching. But specifically in terms of how this has affected my writing, I think in this novel, it started in a lot of ways as an experiment um, where I took eight different characters and started following them and seeing what they would do. And that was the framework for writing the novel. And that came from uh, an approach of the idea of using games, of using experimental writing, which comes out of my work as a professor. Um, and this is not particularly the best way to write a novel. I'm not really recommending this to anybody, um, but it was interesting to approach this book in the beginning like this. I ended up with a very a very wild, uh, very strange draft, which I then spent six years revising. But I think this very wide background, uh, this my studies uh, in experimental literature, uh, helped me to start out from a perspective of, let's see what happens, as opposed to, I know the story already. Her Death Was Also Water is a very character-driven novel, and your characters are somehow familiar. I hesitate to make the comparison, but almost like a TV celebrity survival program played out in a surreal world. Where does that creative process begin for you? Well, I have to say, I started writing this book when I had moved to Norway. I was living alone. I was in an attic. Uh, And and Norway is a lonely place for outsiders. It's a beautiful place, but uh, it takes a long time to integrate there. Uh, They say three generations, I think. And so uh, I started writing this in some ways as an escape. I didn't want, I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write something that wasn't real. But the more I wrote, the more my life seeped into these characters. And so, in fact, I, I shouldn't admit this, but I don't even know if how much of this is actually fiction. I mean, of course, it's fiction, but a lot of these characters come from people I've met and known over the years. Of course, I've changed them. I've manipulated their, their characters for, for the novel, but they really are people who, in, in a lot of ways, are real and represent parts of America. You know, there's certain characters who, you know, there's a character who, who really likes Trump, uh, although I don't think I ever named St. Trump's name, um, and they... So in some ways they're very familiar, especially to Americans, but probably to Australians also, in terms of being people who fit into our contemporary society. But when I've tried to push them in a certain direction where they break that stereotype, where they break that nook where we want to place them. Um, but truthfully, they're all, almost all of them are composites of, of people I've, I've known uh, over the years. None of them come across as archetypes in any way. Was it difficult to avoid that or did that come just from your writing process? I think, I mean, I think I definitely think about that as I go along and I play with it. Uh, you know, for example, I have Mo sort of stuck in a stereotypical position uh, and he is, you know, he's an app designer who has ended up 
or his wife go into a small town and ends up managing a mini mart. So he sort of slipped into this stereotype people have, which he finds uncomfortable. And so I sort of do play with that in the book. Um, I do have this sort of the, the, the professor, David, who sort of fits this image of a sort of feckless professor, which I had some fun with being a professor myself and not feeling like I fit in particularly. I came to professorship very late in life, I guess. Um, and so I kind of am trying to play with these positions and then push against them and break out of them to some extent. And that's very much the case in one of the key characters, Charlotte. Charlotte's got this really unusual way of seeing the world. It's half reality, half dreamlike. There's flashbacks in her world, flashbacks to a world that's filled with tragedy, I suppose. Yes, it definitely is. And, and, and the book, in a lot of ways, I don't want to give too much away, but you find out very early on that she has lost her sister. Um, and that is something that this book, in a lot of ways, the, the adventure or the voyage is a way that she uh, navigates that loss and comes to terms with it. Because in the beginning of the book, she thinks she's she's gotten over it. She thinks that she has sort of come to terms with it, and she definitely hasn't. And this book, in a lot of ways for her especially, is the story of what do we do with that kind of loss? And then the sort of the, the environmental loss mirrors that, uh, because that, for me, I lost uh, somebody when I was young, and it's and it's something that you can't quite logically make work the same way you can't quite make environmental apocalypse work, even though there it is. It's hard to sort of really understand it. And then we come to Deacon, the bodybuilder, and his annoying chronic liar brother Trent. They've both got very individual perspectives on lives and on each other, and they're each carrying some baggage, not unlike most of the characters in this book. Yeah, each character has has lost someone, and that's very significant, and each of them responds very differently to that. In a lot of ways, I was trying to explore eight different ways that people might respond to loss, a personal loss, um, and then at the same time, the way they try to survive in a sort of environmental loss. Um, Deacon, originally, in the very beginning, when I set out, I thought to myself, you know, because I'm a poet, I, I write I write uh, experimental poetry, I, I thought to myself, I want to write a mainstream, page-turning novel with a very simple bad guy, just simple, flat, nothing fancy. But the problem was I got into Deacon's head and I inhabited his perspective and no one thinks that they are a bad guy. And so that helped me sort of have some empathy for him. And while he, maybe he's not the most empathetic character, of course, in the book, but he is someone who I tried to make his values good in some ways, but the world he inhabits and what he's done to, to, to survive has sort of gone wrong. He does have some redeeming features which come out later in the book, particularly uh, when we get to the moment where we're on the boat. But he's very real, and the reality is no better expressed than in the setting or the initial setting of this book, which is the town of Fort Wyatt, uh, a town you label as absolutely average. It could be any town. Yeah, I did try to focus on the way the imagination affects the way we inhabit the world. Um, here we have this, you know, very boring town, which actually is based in some ways, there is a town in America that's been studied by sociologists because it is supposedly normal. And over the years, uh, you know, I don't know if they still study it, but they did. They tried to find out this is the average American town. But um, in this town, which where nothing happens, each of these characters is having their own completely different sort of sense of what is life. Um, and because there's a flood, I think it, I tried to push it so that becomes bigger and bigger. So we see it very clearly and see how different they are. Whereas in day to day life, we kind of, you know, we don't meet these other people or we see them in a store and say hi and keep walking by. And I guess that's the premise of this book is that these people who perhaps shouldn't be together are all thrown together. The big theme here is water. It's elemental in this story as the world is in this process of being subjected to a rising tide of water. Also, this rising tide of panic in your characters. And as time progresses, 
the panic intensifies. In some ways, the, the rising water is erasing the world they knew. Um, and so that becomes the past. And so sort of underwater is this past, which is then gone. I mean, it's down there somewhere, but they can't find it anymore. In a lot of ways, it erases nationality. I mean, this flood becomes so, so large and so sort of, in some ways, uh, fantastic. It erases a sense of the divisions in the world. It erases, I, I don't want to give too much away, but it pushes them towards uh, a place where, yes, time exists differently. And even being in the world exists differently. And so they reach a place where their imaginations become almost as real as the real world. And it's not clear whether or not they still are in this world or the next, um, even though the novel starts out very realistic and their experiences are realistic. They're in a place where it's the radical sort of rise of this water that's done this, um, but that changes everything they think about, uh, particularly time uh, in terms of if all you can see is water, they do have the sun, although I did, actually, well, sorry, I do. I did in the beginning, I have this thick fog to play with this so that all you have is water and you can't even find the sun. So it's hard to tell anything about, you know, you can tell it's day, that's about it. Um, and that was a little bit influenced by Norway where we don't have sun. It's just, it's just clouds and you don't know where the sun is. You don't know what time it is. It feels like always the same time, especially in the summer when it's light all the time. Uh, but it's sort of this feeling of being completely lost in terms of location, in terms of time, where most of the features that you're used to for marking time have been erased. We have this very real, very sort of brutal, uh, concrete survival, right? You're there, you need water. But at the same time, you have these characters who pretty much other than that, they have their minds. You're on a boat by yourself, you're sitting there, lots of hours are passing. And so they, they are both very concrete in the now, but they're also sinking into their thoughts of who they are, the past. Um, so there's this parallel sort of breaking apart of the world. I did spend some time, you know, looking at boats and thinking about how they would organize themselves, how close they would be to each other. The fact that if, if you're on a motorboat of this size and somebody's talking, it's almost impossible not to hear them. So you have a world where you kind of can no longer avoid others. Um, even if you're whispering, there's a scene where some characters are whispering, even if you can't quite hear everything they're saying, you're sort of stuck being involved in their lives. Um, and so there is a moment where two characters are sort of plotting and the third character, we're not sure, quite sure how much they hear, but they hear enough to know something's going on, something's, something's you know, about to happen. Um, so I guess it's, it's sort of a, a world where, you know, we talk about the world getting smaller, we talk about social media, but this is a world where that effect has actually become physical, where you're at the most, the very most, maybe 20 feet from somebody if you were sitting on the very end of the boat. The flood transports these survivors into this other world where it's almost like some kind of supernatural force takes over. Below them is this water of an unpredictable depth, but all around them is this thick fog. And this is where the psychological aspect of this book really kicks up a level. Reality and hallucination, in a way, become inseparable. What does this new and surreal world bring to these characters and to the drama? There's a hint in the beginning of the book. Uh, early on, they see something and they argue over whether or not it's real or not, and it turns out to be real. Um, this starts to grow radically until, and, this, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but they do reach a location. They do reach some place. And when they reach this place, it's it's a very strange place. And it's hard for them to tell, is this delirium or have they actually reached uh, this place that seems like another world, although it also seems very, very real. And they test it out. And um, and so it does walk a fine line in the book uh, between realism and then magical realism. The reason I did this was because I was trying to mirror, for me, the immensity of loss, the, the true immensity of loss. If you've lost someone you love, it's the kind of thing that you can say, right? I had this you know, loved one who died, but to emotionally experience that and understand it, 
it's almost supernatural. And this, of course, is why we have heaven, why we have angels. Those things are very real in terms of our emotional understanding, whether or not you believe that there's a creature somewhere. Um, they are very real in terms of helping us understand what has happened. And so in this book, I try to explore that. And that's why it pushes so far towards uh, this other world, which, you know, you could say is delirium, but I think it becomes more developed than that. So in the end, I don't think any reader will think it's just delirium. They will think these characters have actually pushed beyond the boundaries of the simple real. As this drama intensifies, uh, all these characters are trying to interpret the things around them as, you know, in, in a sense, as signs of good or bad or hope or despair. And somehow these people were chosen. And these people are the chosen ones. Um, is this a, some kind of biblical theme you're exploring or simply the machinations of desperate minds? One nice thing about having this many characters is that uh, each of them interprets what's happening. And so you don't, I try to keep away from having an authorial, you know, having Alan there somehow saying, this is what it is. And Carol in particular, who has probably the, the you know, the most religious background, although there's some issues for her with that. Uh, she does sort of interpret it sometimes as a biblical flood. She does think about whether or not she's chosen, which she of course then thinks, you know, she wants to go into politics and thinks, oh my gosh, I've been chosen. Maybe I can become, you know, a major politician because she's a very pragmatic thinker. Um, and I think each of the characters thinks about this, Carol being the most likely to think that they were chosen. Um, but it is something to think about if if there is, or maybe I should say when, but, but when there's a disaster, um, there's a, something that happens to survivors. And fortunately, I haven't experienced this personally, um, but you can read about it. Uh, we try to apply logic to that uh, in whatever way we can, even though typically there is no logic to survival, it's luck. Each of these characters tries to figure out what's happened, and then tries to fit themselves into what that means. So, for example, David uh, wants to save his daughter. Talking about David, he's got an interesting view of the situation. He somehow sees the universe as cognizant, beyond religion, but some kind of faith that the universe is or contains some kind of balancing force. Now, that's a very unusual idea for David, who is a professor and, I guess, an intellectual. Yeah, and, and David's an interesting character because he's both very much an intellectual, um, but he's also someone who who who's very much a romantic, in love with his wife. His life is sort of falling apart. He's sort of in this desperate situation because he can't get a job or can't hold on to a job, which uh, people in the American Academy are familiar with. Um, and so he is sort of a mixed bag because he he isn't a character who in the end is quite able to put it all together. You know, Charlotte uh, really is a courageous character who we end up really respecting. David, perhaps in the end, uh, less. Uh, it's sort of his choices in the end we wonder about. Now, I've got to talk about this book as a thriller, because it's as thrilling as any thriller I've ever read. Um, and there's nothing like the thrill of a possible reality, an impending reality, something that's upon us in many ways. Um, uh, in many works of fiction, we suspend belief in order to ride that wave that makes it a thriller. But her death was also water feels real more than possible, probable even, and uh, more of a thriller as a result. Is is that the message in this book? I, I love that you're calling it a thriller. As, as a literature professor who loves liter literary fiction, I did try to write a page turner, you know. I didn't know if it would it would actually be called a thriller, but I, I do think it moves with a you know, pretty strong plot. Quite a few people give me feedback. Um, I sort of have a filmic mind. Like I did make some film when I was younger, uh, and I loved it. And I love sort of framing an image. And I do sort of think of scene by scene, what do I see? What do I smell? What do I hear? Um, uh, and so in a lot of ways, the book is written very viscerally. We get this sense of being in the water all the time. 
And when people finish it, I think they, they get a sense of like, you know, if you're a surfer and you're sleeping at night dreaming, you often dream of the reality of it. At the same time, I do push by the end of the book, I do push the reader's mind away from reality towards a place that can't quite be real. So I'm trying to play with a visceral place that we feel, um, but also doesn't seem real, seems seems beyond the real, which I think in a situation where you have environmental apocalypse, um, I mean, in some ways, so my family was in Katrina. I don't know if you remember Katrina, the hurricane in New Orleans, where the, the hurricane came like they always do. Everyone hungered down or left. Hurricane was over. Sun came out and then the water started to rise and it rose and people got into their houses, rose. They got on the second floor, it rose and they were in their attics and it just kept rising. It didn't make any sense. Um, and so there was sort of this illogic to the environment, which you couldn't explain, which of course, now we know what happened. But that sense of this is this really real, but makes no sense. And so I was playing with that. And I think as we see more and more uh, environmental destruction, the individual experience will be like that. Of course, at some point we might explain it, but the experience is one that is visceral, real, but makes no sense. I don't want to give listeners the idea that this book is just terrifying and bleak and, um, you know, the end of the earth, because there's so many other elements to it. The characters are fantastic, so beautifully crafted, the sense of tragedy so nicely balanced with this, I guess, very deftly applied sense of humour. I like that you said this, because I definitely think that this is not the road. This is not Cormac McCarthy's road. I did not try to write a novel that's going to destroy us. It's brutal. It has lots of humour. Even in the most difficult moments, there's hope. The end of the novel is very hopeful. Uh, so I think this is the kind of read. I don't know if I can call it a beach read, but it definitely is one where it's hopeful, it's funny. In a lot of ways, what I'm actually doing is in this difficult situation, uh, trying to explore the way that humans are really brilliant uh, and beautiful at being able to deal with these things. Um, and so there are moments of beauty, even in this absurd situation, um, because I'm hopeful that no matter what happens, we as humans really have the capability to work things out, even if it's very different than we imagined it. Um, and we will, in some ways, be forced to deal with other people as the environment becomes more of an issue. We will have to talk to people that we haven't talked to. We will have to think about their points of view and think, you know, I may disagree, but we're living together on this small boat called the Earth. Uh, what are we going to do with this? Alan, this is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It was wonderful to be on. Thank you for having me. I've been talking to Alan C. Jones about his novel, Her Death Was Also Water. It's published by Midnight Sun, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.